2: Foundation Arvind Gupta. The reason
3: that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years.
2: Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host are Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors, and Lee Chenren, Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree, joining me in the studio today. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. We have a really interesting show lined up a lot of the headlines today are surrounding China, what's going on with the coronavirus and you know, the aftermath of the China trade deal. Last year, we'd have an expert at the show, Andy Rothman from Matthews Asia, talking about China. Uh, really looking forward to getting his take, return guest to the program and uh, sort of one of the big China experts that we follow. Really sort of a China EM-focused show. Professor, uh, a lot that is sort of the main dominating story, but any, any thoughts on what's happening in the markets a little weakness here to close the week?
3: Yeah, uh, interesting, uh, as has been commented today, uh, the 30 year bond, uh, in the U.S. has hit an all time low, um, of uh, 1.92%. Uh, the 10 years 147. Now 136 is its all time low. You know, very honestly, uh, you know, there, there, there's a case to be made for the Fed lowering a quarter point. I don't think they're going to. Uh, I'm pretty sure they're not, but Right now, uh, the funds rates 160 and, uh, the 10 years 147. We really do have an inversion on funds versus, uh, that, that, uh, 10 year. Um, and, uh, you know, fears of coronavirus are certainly there. Um, cancellations are fears more than the reality. There are an increase in cases, but there are other signs slowing down. Uh, U.S. data is coming in mixed. We had a, a, a kind of a disappointing um, PMI service reading, but the uh, regional Philly Fed was was blockbusters as well as the Empire, New York. So it's 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 uncertain. Sure, I mean, it, really this quarter looks to be 2, 2.1. I don't think it's as high as 2.6, which is what um, Larry Kudlow was uh, quoting on uh, CNBC this morning on the, the Atlanta Fed GDP now. I think it's uh, in the low, too. So really nothing much uh, in, you know, in the U.S. so far. Uh, I was on um, Bloomberg earlier. I, I talked about the fact that beyond the virus, we'll see how that does it. Even if we get that under control, we have we have an earnings issue. Uh, earnings are, are are going to be relatively weak this year. With 20 times P.E., it's going to be hard to make a lot of progress I think in the markets, I don't see what the accelerators are are actually uh, going to be. And with political uncertainties, uh, you know, with the presidential election in November, uh, I I think we're going to have a choppy market for the rest of the year.
2: Yeah, I mean, on the the rate drop, I know last year you were a big proponent of the Fed shouldn't let the curve invert. And uh, eventually, they they took notice. I mean, how how do you think they react as as you get this inverted curve? Is that going to be something you're pounding the table eventually again if it keeps going going more inverted? Well, if
3: it keeps on going, you know, we're going to, I you know, there there are really good reasons why we have a very much flatter curve in in our modern times than we used to in the past, and and so I understand that. So uh, flatness is not as threatening, and and you could say we're we're we're, we're pretty fast. I mean the, right now the three-month treasury is 155 and the 10 years 147 units eight basis points if you go by that um uh so i'm it, it uh but you know the the truth of the matter is is that we have enough weakness that the fed could think about another you know quarter point drop remember they made a technical adjustment of raising that funds target by five basis points which i didn't think was necessary and now that's contributed marvin we really have the the funds rate of 160 where you can't get 160 uh you know anywhere out to 15 years so you know that does mean a lot of people are satisfied on their fixed income to park uh on the cash basis um which uh you know doesn't encourage much risk taking uh on the part of uh american business i'm not gonna i'm not pounding the table now uh the the You know, the Fed is watching the coronavirus to see, you know, is is it going to spread enough that it really threatens the U.S. And uh, they won't take any measure unless really it gets a lot worse. And we see it spreading in the U.S. and around the world that threatens supply chains to the extent that it's going to have substantial damage. We are not at that point yet. We are not at that point yet. Uh, So the Fed is uh, going to be satisfied for, for standing pat
2: so the choppiness uh to come to come um and and sort of the earnings just being sort of flat is is one of the things any other is there any positive catalyst that you'd say would be you know what you get the negative headlines on the coronavirus but positive headlines what's going to counteract it
3: well i think uh, you know another challenge and uh, uh, wow i mean we had the the dollars soaring uh earlier this week we've had a little bit of a pullback but uh Uh, part of it's coronavirus rush to the dollar, but that's a challenge. Uh, I mean, the only thing that I see is, is if they, uh, if we get this virus under control and China says we've got that under control, you're going to see a relief rally, uh, that actually could bring the Dow to 30,000. You know, we're, we're at 29 now, so 30,000 is really just a 3% increase, but, but then it has to contend with a strong dollar. It has to contend with. With with earnings challenges, uh, you know, going forward as it tends with an uncertain political environment, going forward, that I I think I I find hard to find uh, a lot of uh, a po- positive catalysts going forward. Uh, then again, I don't I don't see anything that you know precipitates a big drop going forward. Although there's always unexpected events, but I, I still. I'm still looking for a choppy market. Market's up about what three percent. We're up down one today. We're up about three. I said we're going to be up seven, eight for for the year. So we're halfway there in the middle of February. Um, So uh, again, I think it's it's following that course. Uh, We'll have volatility, we always do in the market, but uh, uh, in my opinion, still abroad with valuations cheaper. better, I think, intermediate term returns and maybe 12-month returns in the United States.
2: Very good, Professor. I know you're traveling today. Thanks so much for taking some time with us. Happy to be with you. Bye. We're going to be talking with, uh, you know, the, the news headlines of the day are all, you know, seem to focus around China. Uh, and our first guest is an expert on China and the U.S. He writes a blog called Synology, which is closely followed around around the world. So I'm w- welcoming back Andy Rothman, investment strategist for Matthews Asia. Andy, thank you so much for joining us on our show today. Thanks for having me back. So maybe, you know, give us your top-down view. How are you looking at China? It's sort of hard to analyze, given all the sort of noise, you know, with with this virus and the slowdown caused by that. But how? what's your big-picture view of how you're looking at China today?
0: Well, of course, any discussion about the Chinese economy has to start with the virus. And, uh, and first, I'd like to just again, pass on my my sympathies to everybody who's been affected by the uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, as it's now known. Uh, But let me talk for a moment about some of the data trends that we're seeing, because I'm kind of analyzing this the way I analyze the economy by looking at the data. And I think it's important that 98% of the global cases of this virus, over 75,000 of them, 98% are still in mainland China, 82% still in Hubei province. That's actually up from 60 percent twenty days ago Uh, that's where the virus began so it doesn't seem to be spreading out geographically as much as people have been fearing and while there are certainly cases in other countries the numbers are generally quite small I mean Hong Kong's only got like 68 cases Singapore 85 here of course in the US we only have 16 cases so uh, and the number of new cases has been for the last two weeks declining on a day-over-day basis. So I'm hopeful that by next month, we're likely to see this under control.
1: Um, hi, this is Li Chang. I, I do want to, um, I do want to say push back a little bit. Isn't like um because the reality in China is that it has been on vacation in a very uh, strict lockdown. Like my parents, you know, they're not allowed to go outside um, only once, two days. So if the data is based on this kind of strict lockdown, do you th- and it cannot continue, you know, because the Chinese, um, half of the Chinese don't have money to last them, you know, more than two or three weeks. They have to get back to work. Do you think that, you know, just solely based on these declining trends, it could be um, underestimated a little bit?
0: Well, I think the big risk is what you point out, uh, because we know that outside of Hubei province in China, people are slowly starting to go back to work. So we're starting to see more travel, more people on on public transportation, more people going to offices and factories. And as people congregate more, the risk of a jump in the number of cases is definitely there. And we saw one element of this last night in that there were three jails in China that announced a large number of cases. In fact, most of the new cases in China uh, yesterday came from these three jails. And so that's, I think, the big risk and something I'm watching carefully. At the same time, though, in other places, let's say Hong Kong or Singapore, where um, they haven't had uh, these strict lockdowns that we've seen in mainland China, the number of cases, you know, still in both places below 100.
1: Um, I understand. uh, But also in South Korea, you know, yesterday there's a huge jump close to 200. So I think in some way, I don't want to be too negative, but in some way it could be, you know, um, unexpected uh, risk uh, popping up.
0: Yes. And the South Korean cases were similar to uh, what I was talking about in China, where it all seems to have come from one uh, church congregation, so people close together. And and so I don't want to minimize that risk of that popping up. and I think we'll really know more in the next few weeks as people are starting to get back to work now and, and get into more social contact.
2: So how do you think, you know, as, a, as an analyst looking at all this, you know, uncertainty for what, what it means, you sort of had a baseline view coming into the year of, of what was happening and sort of the big story last year was the China trade deal. Maybe you could just step back. How do you think the China trade negotiations ended up uh, for both China and the U.S.? How do you think that's going to develop going forward from here? Well,
0: I think the deal that was signed just over a month ago between the U.S. and China was fantastic in that it represented a truce between the two sides in the tariff dispute, prevented the tariff dispute from escalating into a full-blown trade war, at least for this year. Uh, At the same time, though, I'm pretty worried about the main element of the deal, which is the idea that China should buy a lot more stuff from the United States. And the reason I'm worried about that is the targets that were put out in that deal are were, even before the virus came out, very, very unrealistic. We were looking at a over 50% year-over-year increase in agricultural purchases, so primarily soybeans, uh, compared to the peak year of 2017, a 250% increase in energy purchases over the peak in 2017, just this calendar year, and then more increases next year. At the same time, though, I look at this primarily as a political deal, and I believe that President Trump signed this deal because he felt that declaring victory in this fight with China over trade was going to be more beneficial to his re-election prospects than continuing the tariff dispute. And so, therefore, I think he's got a vested interest to make this work. Uh, The president put out a tweet this morning saying that it looks like it's going to take more time for China to step up its purchases uh, because of the virus, and therefore he was going to get the U.S. Department of Agriculture to step up its payments of cash subsidies to American farmers. So if he continues on the path of cutting some slack to China because of the virus, uh, then I think at least through early November, the deal should hold up well. Another thing I'll point out is that, well, Xi Jinping can't get the ports reopened right away because of the virus. There are no workers to operate the cranes and the trucks. He has been doing one thing to send a signal to President Trump, which is that despite the fact that the dollar has been strong this year since the deal was signed he has not allowed the B to weaken at all which is normally what it would have done and that's a sign i think to the president that he wants to do the best he can to follow through on the terms of the deal
1: uh, hi, um, thank you. And I, um, since right now in China, uh, the schools are still, you know, not open. And, um, uh, we've looked at some data which ch- tried, try to look at, you know, the sectors that most affected and healthcare sector definitely have, um, benefited in some way, uh, in, in the stock price, um, uh, to this virus. What do you think in, in terms of the health, sec- health se- uh, healthcare sector uh, in Asia?
0: Yeah, that's a good point. You're right that uh, a lot of the healthcare names that my colleagues on the Matthews Asia investment team uh, invest in have done very well this year. But you know, we're long-term investors, and I think we are not tending to make changes in the way we look at companies based on the virus right now. If there are Chinese companies or companies around the rest of the region that we really liked uh, because of their Uh, Quality of their management and the business plans and their competitive positions. If we really like them at the end of last year uh, before the virus took hold, uh, we're still going to like them now. And, you know, for people who are going to try and make a short-term bet on this, this is going to be pretty difficult, probably outside of healthcare. But for a long-term investor, if people get frightened and valuations come down, this might be an opportunity to buy.
2: Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Andy Rothman, investment strategist at Matthews Asia, sort of one of the big experts on what's going on in China that we like talking to just to get his update on big-picture worldviews. Uh, and Li-Chen, I know you wanted to follow up with another question here.
1: Hi. It, it's very interesting to hear. And The other thing I want to get your view, uh, investment view is on a lot of these um, online learning. That, For example, in China, the schools are not yet open. Um, you know, most of working parents uh, right now, a lot of kids really is – Learning from home. So, what do you think about, um, you know, like cloud computing, these kind of, um, technology or, or online learning kind of companies exposure? Like, do you think this could be, um, you know, a a long-term investment or, or just like you said, you still believe this, you know, the virus is not going to fundamentally change these sectors?
0: Yeah, well, keep in mind, of course, that I'm the macro person on our investment team, and I've got over 40 colleagues who do the stock picking, so that's not my specialty. But uh, I think our view is that if we're right and the virus comes under control by March, then this is not something which is going to fundamentally change the way we look at economies in the region, including China, or companies, again, companies that, that we felt comfortable with, of months ago, uh, are probably companies that we're going to feel comfortable with by the end of the year. And my expectation is if I'm right that the virus is starting to peak and come under control, that we're going to see a pretty good macroeconomic snapback, just like we did uh, in 2003 with SARS, where the numbers in the first quarter in 2003 were, were, were terrible, whether you looked at uh, consumer spending or earnings growth. And that's going to be the case again now. I mean, this quarter is going to be terrible for macro numbers, for earnings growth. But we know why that's happening. It's not a failure of companies. It's this epidemic. And if we uh, think that it's going to come under control, then we should see a pretty good recovery in the second quarter.
1: Um, just want to push a little bit in in terms of when you say like under control, like what scenario are you thinking Because i and I think in the 2003 case um the economy bounced back very quickly is because you know by may uh, SaaS, uh kind of went away like in this case what like what scenario are you thinking in terms of investment is you know kind of under control?
0: Well, basically, when I'm looking at the trends in the data for cases and fatalities right now, it's leading me to have a base case that by the end of March, in China, outside of Hubei province, the disease should be under control enough to allow people to get back to a normal life. Within Hubei province, I think this is going to remain a public health disaster for several months at least. And that's, you know, not trivial. The the population of Hubei is equivalent to the population of New York State, plus everybody who lives in California, so it's a big place. Uh, but I think for the rest of China, the numbers are looking much better. One of the really interesting things is that the vast majority of deaths from this disease are in Hubei province. And, uh, in fact, uh, I think it's um, about 95 percent of, of all the deaths are in, in Hubei. And the fatality rate is much, much higher. It's about 3.4% in Hubei compared to less than 1% in the rest of China. So, what it's saying, and this is really tragic, is that if you get sick with this virus and you can get to a healthcare facility any place in the world outside of Hubei, you're most likely to recover. But unfortunately, because the system is so overwhelmed inside Hubei, your chances of dying are much higher. But the positive side of this is that I think it means that people outside of Hubei can get back to work in the coming weeks.
2: Um, so, Andy, I know one of your long-term big picture themes is just the china consumer and you know when you think about sort of and and you know the the main debate last year was exports and imports and like our you know what is this whole trade dynamics um but how do you see with china's long-term growth sort of slowing down the sort of opportunity for the china consumer given how far they've grown over the last decade or so
0: yeah so there's several elements of that that we can talk about um For example, the trade dispute between the US and China is not really a trade dispute. It's more, in my view, a view from some people in Washington that China represents a competitive threat and they need to be stopped from getting richer and stronger. I think this is misguided, but I think that's really what's driving this rather than trade. And trade is a really small part of the Chinese economy. Uh, The consumer story that you talked about is the biggest part, so for example, last year was the eighth consecutive year in which the tertiary part of China's GDP, the consumer and services part, was bigger than the secondary part, manufacturing and construction. And consumption drives all of the job creation and all of the economic growth in China. So that's really important. And that's why I've been calling this the world's best consumer story for a number of years. That should not change because of the virus, assuming the virus comes under control in the next couple of months, uh, income growth has been phenomenal over the last decade. There's going to be a dip in the first quarter, but that should come back as well. So I think that the consumer story is still going to remain quite strong.
2: And you know, when, and, and for that six percent growing, you know, uh, sort of slowing down, how do, how do you frame that opportunity for people, even though it's it's sort of off now a much bigger base?
0: That's right. The base effect is really important and. It's always discouraging to me that people forget about that, don't talk about it very much. So, for example, let's say last year GDP growth was roughly about 6%. A decade ago it was roughly 9%. But that 6% was multiplied last year against a base that was about 180% bigger than the base 10 years ago. So last year at the slower growth rate, the incremental expansion in the size of China's economy was about one hundred and forty percent bigger than it was at the faster growth rate a decade ago, which means more opportunities for Chinese companies selling goods and services to Chinese people and the same holds true of course, with the respect to the base effect with retail sales so even at a gradually slightly slower growth rate each year on everything that 's year over year you 're still talking about bigger increases and a bigger opportunity for us as investors
2: so let 's say we get past you know this sort of n- the news about the virus. Um, and we're sort of back to, you know, last year's story of, 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 the, of the trade deal. Like, how do you see phase two? Like, where is phase two, the sticking points going to be? Um, and what is the tension going to be, you know, given your, your, your fears of, or people's fears about the, the sort of up and coming China versus U.S. story and sort of the competition there? Like, where
0: do you see that going? Well, for the, for the near term, phase two is not on the table. Uh, I've spoken to Trump administration officials who say that they're not interested in starting a conversation about phase two until after the election, because they know it's going to be a much harder conversation than phase one was, and why do that when you're in the middle of a campaign? And my Chinese contacts have told me they are also not interested in beginning phase two conversations until they know who the next president's going to be, because that's who's going to have to sign phase two. Uh, But what I'm really worried about is not really phase two or phase three. What I'm worried about is a, an atmosphere, a view in Washington right now that China represents an existential threat to the United States and needs to be stopped, that steps need to be taken to prevent China from getting richer and stronger and prevent its companies from getting richer and stronger. Now, that's not to say we don't have legitimate concerns about things like uh, technology transfer and uh, playing by the rules set out by the WTO. But I think that this is being cast as an ideological conflict, and I think that's a mistake. China today is not the Soviet Union of the Cold War. They just they don't want to crush us. They want to outcompete us. And do the rules need to be adjusted to deal with China? Of course they do. But to do that, we need to support organizations like the WTO rather than tear them down. So what i really worried about is after the election if we continue to treat china as an enemy what does that do to the global economy china accounts for about one-third of global economic growth every year that's a larger share of global growth than the u.s europe and japan combined if we get into a fight with them and they close our markets to us what happens to gm which sells more cars in china than it does in the united states what happens to qualcomm which gets two-thirds of its global revenue from China, or Intel or Texas Instruments, which get, which get a, a very large share of their revenue from there? What happens to Nike, which has been getting 22 consecutive quarters of double-digit revenue growth in China? So these are things we need to think about. What happens to our scientific development if we put up a wall between scientists and students in the United States and China?
1: Yeah, actually, I really want to agree with you. I I think this is, as a, you know, uh, president of region foreign China, the fear among Chinese, at least, you know, the people, among the Chinese people is indeed that, that, you know, most Chinese people just want to work hard and, you know, achieve the dream, you know, or you call it American dream or, or, or Chinese dream. And the fear is, you know, to be, to be treated like a Soviet Union as an enemy. I, I think that is very, um, not good for the relation for both China and the US. Um, yes, I thank agree. you and for. I think
0: there are too many people who don't understand that China is not the Soviet Union. Uh, for example, you know, China, there's, there's no reason to believe that China wants to destroy the United States. There are no signs for that. China doesn't have allies, there's no equivalent of the uh, Eastern European uh, bloc that supported the Soviet Union. Uh, and China is heavily integrated into the global economy, which the Soviet Union was not.
1: Um, do you want to follow up a question? What uh, Japan is a, a huge uh, part of a, a lot of U.S. investors. Do you think the Olympic is likely to go on? Like, what's the decision making right now? Like, as you imagined in Japan.
0: Well, I'm sure they're nervous, uh, but it's all going to depend on the trajectory of the disease. Uh, the Olympics are not until what July. Um, And if the disease comes under control in the next six weeks or so, which is my base case, then there should be plenty of time for the Olympics to go on. Will some people decide they don't want to travel? Sure. But I think there's going to be plenty of other people waiting to snap up their tickets in hotel rooms.
2: Um, And and when you think about the other... You focus a lot of different things at Matthews Asia. I know you're the China sort of expert. Any sort of other places around Asia that you are looking at focus on the aftermath of what's going on in China, sort of implications for any other sort of economies that we haven't talked about that that might be interesting to talk about?
0: Yeah, uh, well, obviously the virus is having a significant impact across the region and here in the United States as well, particularly from an investor's perspective, because so many American companies China, either because it drives their sales growth or because of the supply chains, or in some cases, both. Uh, and that's true across the region as well. But we are continuing to remain focused on the domestic demand story across Asia, because this the, the local consumers buying goods and services from local companies is really what drives the, these economies, and, it, and it's the focal point of our investment strategy across the region. And those... Stories really aren't going to change if we believe that the virus is going to be brought under control in the next.
2: yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it might surprise people, despite all the trade tension that was around there. I mean, China, when I looked around a lot of different indexes, I track I mean, China was one of the, maybe the strongest uh, of all the different regions. Uh, and so despite all the uncertainty, China still did well. Um, and uh, I don't know, is that is that, do you have a a worldview on how to think about the markets? You have people coming nervous and, and you, just, you know, just try to keep them focused on the long-term view?
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. So despite the, tensions due to the tariff dispute. Uh, uh, the Chinese economy had a really strong year last year. Chinese market did well. Our, our, uh, my colleagues who pick stocks have pretty successful years in many cases. And I think the rest of the region is holding up well because one of the mistakes that some people in Washington made over the last couple of years is thinking that the U.S. government had a lot of leverage over China and over some other countries in the region just on tariffs and trade. And in fact, it really didn't work that way. Uh, For example, by not bringing American allies into the discussion with China about their market access practices and IP practices and going it alone, we really didn't have a lot of leverage. Because typically, the U.S. was only taking about 20% of China's total exports, and those exports were a small part of the economy. I, I estimate that only about 10% of everything that rolls out of Chinese factories gets exported. And so it didn't generate a lot of pressure or a lot of damage on the economy or on markets.
2: Andy, it's always great to get your worldview. Thanks so much for joining us on, on our program today.
0: Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit WisdomTree.com.